He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, October 17, 2020. I have an action-packed show, so let's get right to it. Craig's Lawyer's Lounge opens up twice. First, Amy Patton, who gets my endorsement to be the new DA in the 18th Judicial District. Arapaho, Douglas, Lincoln, Elbert County in Colorado, Great session of Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Find out why I endorse Amy. Then I endorse referendum B. Kent Theory comes on to hear me announce that I believe the Gallagher Amendment needs to go the way of the dodo bird. Kent Theory, former CEO of DeVita, a Fortune 500 company, he is my guest as well. And then don't miss it, Doug Schoen from Fox News. He worked for the Clintons. He was a designated Democrat for years on Fox News. He will tell the stories of what's happening with him. He's also an attorney, Harvard Law. Then my troubadour, Dave Gunders, gives us a beautiful song that's about his mother when she passed away. He did not mention that, but hear the song, and you will find out why those lyrics are so poignant. This is a great episode. We are getting close to the election of a lifetime. Donald Trump wants to impose, inflict herd immunity on us with this COVID. Do not let it happen. Vote the other way. Follow your better leaders like Jared Polis and Joe Biden and little old me. Follow the rules. Put a mask on. Do not go to a Trump rally to back Donald Trump at this point is to show very bad judgment. Listen, as I discuss this with Amy Patton, soon to be a very important district attorney in Colorado. Dan Levitt, Sandler Training. Hi, Dan. Craig sent me. Craig Silverman? That's him. Man, can I tell you a good story about Craig? I'd love it. Once Craig took his dog, Tuffy, to a singing competition... For what purpose? Well, the dog was going to be in a dog food commercial. And how did they do? Well, Tuffy did fine. That dog, he could sing. So did they get the job? No, they didn't. There was a problem. And what was that? Well, Tuffy only sang when Craig started singing. And when that happened, everybody around started laughing. You know, Craig's not a good singer. But Craig's a great talker. You know, he sure is. Now let's talk about how Sandler can help you. Great. My sales team really needs help. You've come to the right place. Sandler Training can help you big time if you are a salesman or a sales manager. If you would like to learn more about Tuffy or me or how to make sales, call my old friend Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig and Tuffy sent you. This is the Craig Silverman Show, and I'm Craig. Our democracy is at stake. It's never been more important to let your voice be heard. 
Join the conversation and fight for our democracy. It is our duty and our constitutional right. Follow The Craig Silverman Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. Be a part of the change. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Oh, what a day, what a life, what a world. A world where Amy Patton comes back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. The lounge is where prominent attorneys come to relax, tell war stories, kick around current events. Amy, it's been about three years. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing really well. Everything considered. How are you, Craig? You mean that pandemic? <laughs> that, yep. And just our current state of affairs. <laughs> yeah, the president canceled the pandemic. I just watched him at a big <laughs> rally in Florida. Everybody's on top of each other and... No masks, probably. No masks. But we will get around to that, gentlemen. Let's not worry about his election. Let's talk about yours. Tell everybody, first of all, how you qualify to be in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Are you, in fact, a lawyer? And can you provide your bar number? <laughs> I am, in fact, a lawyer at 28372. Yeah, 28372. I don't have to say that very often. But yes, I've been a lawyer for uh, 26 years now. So I graduated from law school in 1994. So I have lots of legal experience and it's great to be back. It's been a little over three years since I was here. I think it was in September of 17. So um, obviously a lot has happened since then. Right. You were running for Colorado Attorney General then. Quite an interesting race. One of the best in Colorado history, quite frankly. And it's emerged that Phil Weiser is Colorado's attorney general, and he's been a repeat visitor to the lounge. And I know you ran against him, but how do you think he's doing? You know, I think he's doing a great job. You know, I did run against him initially, but then I bowed out about two months before the primary and got behind Phil, endorsed Phil, and worked really hard to make sure that Phil won, both because I thought Phil had the best chance of beating George Brockler, and I did not want Mr. Brockler to be our attorney general. But I also just knew with Phil's background and experience and vision that he was going to do an amazing job as AG, and that's exactly what he's done. Give a nutshell on your journey as a lawyer, Amy. Sure. Yeah. So I went to uh, law school at Georgetown. I graduated from there in 1994. And I stayed in D.C. for a few years. After that, I worked for two different judges in D.C., one on the D.C. Court of Appeals and one on the Federal District Court in D.C. Went to a law firm, um, Sidley and Austin, for a couple of years in D.C. and then moved out here to Colorado in 1998. I joined the law firm of Wheeler Trigg. It was in Wheeler Trigg and Kennedy. Now it's Wheeler Trigg O'Donnell. It was a brand new firm. I was probably the, gosh, I think it was like the, 17th attorney at the firm when they hired me. I had a great experience there. I made partner after three years at the firm. They had given me credit for the work I had done previously and was the uh, recruiting partner at the firm and really enjoyed working there. They, it was just really a great group of people. But I, you know, my calling was always public service. So I left that job in 2005 and went to the Colorado Attorney General's office as a consumer protection prosecutor Stayed there for a couple of years, then was recruited away to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, where I served for almost 11 years. And when John Walsh became our U.S. Attorney, he uh, put me on his leadership team, where I served for six years uh, on his leadership team. And then when Bob Chor became the U.S. Attorney, he promoted me to the third in command in the office. So 
I was overseeing a budget, uh, supervising prosecutors all around the state. And then, as you know, I left that job to uh, run for AG. After that run was over, I went back to the AG's office for a while. I was serving a couple of different roles there, but eventually was in special prosecutions where we um, assist the rural counties, you know, who have funding issues and staffing issues. We assist them with felony prosecutions like homicides and arson cases and things like that. And that was really a meaningful work because I, you know, really enjoyed supporting and helping and trying to understand the needs of our rural communities uh, in our state because, you know, they can often be neglected in favor of the more urban settings. And so that was really important, meaningful work for me. And then I uh, left there to go to the 5th Judicial District Attorney's Office, where I set up and ran an adult diversion program, which, again, was really meaningful work for me. That's Who was your boss in the 5th? Bruce Brown. I know so, Bruce Brown. In fact, yeah. when he came to Colorado, he and I had a nice call. So way to go. Bruce is a fascinating guy. He's been in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. What a very yeah. background you have. What are you doing these days? Yeah. So these days I am in the 11th Judicial District, just working part-time while I'm running. I was hoping to be able to, to focus full-time on the run, but I, I decided I needed to go back to work so we could make sure we could pay our bills because <laughs> it's it was a little tight, you know, especially with just healthcare is so expensive these days. That was our main concern is trying to pay for healthcare. Yeah, I understand that. Sure. You know, under COBRA was so expensive. So yeah, so I went back there and down there a few days a week and um, doing that. And hopefully we'll be uh, leading the 18th Judicial District come January. Tell us about the race so far. How did you get the Democratic nomination? I did have a Democratic primary against George Brockler's second in command. And so, you know, we, we just worked really hard during the primary. We did both the assembly process and the petition process to get on the ballot, which I think you're familiar with both of those. And, you know, in retrospect, I'm really grateful that we did that because when we were collecting signatures to get on the ballot, it was pre-COVID. So we were going door to door, talking to people, our, me and my volunteers, talking to folks about our race, you know, and having them sign the, our petition to get on the ballot. So we had a lot of voter interaction before everything shut down because right now we, we couldn't be doing that at all. So I was grateful we did that. We also went through the assembly. Eventually my opponent dropped out of the assembly. So we just had the support of all of the Democrats who were there at the assembly. But we went on to the election and we had a huge win. We won by almost 44 points oh my in gosh. the primary. So what right. were the percentages? What do you um, mean, 70? To, that's 71 Yeah, it's about 21 29? point something. Yep. Yeah. That, so, that yeah, is. Wow. That was a big win. Good organization by you. But it's not over. You've got to run not against over. the Republican nominee. Tell us about your opponent. Yeah, so my opponent also cur currently works in the, the office for Mr. Brockler. You know, I think he's been a lawyer for about 12 or 13 years, maybe a little more than that. He's a career prosecutor, but that's all he's done. He's worked for Mr. Brockler for eight years, and he worked in another DA's office before that. You know, whereas I feel that I bring a much more varied background and depth of experience to the job, given all the different offices I've worked for and, and things like that. So I have a really, really good vision. And frankly, we really believe and we've been talking to lots of voters who also believe that we, we need change within this office, within our criminal justice system generally, and I'm the right candidate to bring that change. And the change would mean something different than George Brockler. If I understand between the lines when you ran in the Democrat primary, did you feel like he was supporting your opponent? And now that you're running in the general, do you feel like George Brockler, the current DA, is supporting your opponent? 
Yes. So he has endorsed my Republican opponent. We definitely felt behind the scenes he was supporting my Democratic opponent during the primary. And, you know, he was using his platform as a, a guest commentator for the Denver Post to, you know, take little jabs at me. And, you know, he's been insulting me on Twitter the way he... Well, do, you want, do you want to jab back? Because this is the perfect time. <laughs> or you can throw you a know? hard hook or a, an overhead bomb. I mean, if George Brockler is making you mad, let's hear about it. Yeah, you know, uh, he's not making me that that mad anymore. But, you know, he was insult very insulting early on. He asked me on Twitter who would show me where to sit in court. So, you know, he just assumed I never tried a case. And, you know, is that true? Have you tried cases? Yes, I have tried cases. Yes. And I know where to sit in court. So, I mean, we had a we had a back and forth and whatnot. Do you um, notice how the prosecution always gets to sit closer to the jury? I always thought that yes. was an advantage. I always I think it's an advantage as well. I mean, because you can definitely be watching the jury, especially if, you know, you got co-counsel, you can be watching the jury react, you know, to the witness testimony, whatever is going on. So I do think that is an advantage. Now, in fairness to George Brockler, didn't you try to defeat him and help defeat him by backing Phil Weiser? Yes, oh, I did. I did. Yeah, the interesting thing about that was when I dropped out of the AG race, George Brockler and the Republicans were very complimentary of my background at that point in time. They said, oh, this is, you know, Amy was the only candidate left with any criminal prosecution experience. And now the Democrats have nobody with any criminal prosecution experience because at that point in time, uh, Michael Doherty had already dropped out and had been appointed to be the DA up in Boulder. So, so it was an interesting shift in tactics, but that's the Republican MO these days is, you know, just not to run on issues or platforms, but just to attack. So it's it's part of the part of the process. I've noticed, and I think we could ask people to take judicial notice of it. I mean, it's the <laughs> Trump agree. party, and I live in the 18th judicial district. I'm proudly unaffiliated, mm -hmm. but right now the Republicans are the Trump party, and I think anybody who would support Trump right now is showing bad judgment. The main thing I want out of a prosecutor is good judgment. Therefore, presumptively, I'm going to go for the non-Trump party. And that's you. And I notice on your DA website, unlike a lot of DA races, you list your party affiliation and you do it so proudly, right? Yes. Yes, I do. Your opponent, you would never know that he's a Republican unless you go in the voting booth and then you see, oh. He's got an R behind his name. Do you know that your opponent is a Trump supporter? I don't know for certain. He hasn't stated that publicly, but my guess is that he is. Do you think my way of evaluating things is fair? I mean, I know you. I like you. I know Mr. Kellner, John Kellner, just maybe a little bit, not as well as I know you, but D breaks the tie in this race because the Republican Party has lost its way once it got taken over by Donald Trump. Am I on to something? Yeah, you're totally on to something. I completely, completely agree with you. And this is actually a conversation I've had with my parents. My parents are, they're lifelong Republicans and we've had this conversation, but yeah, you know, you guys are like Ronald Reagan Republicans. You, you know, there were Republicans with integrity 
who used to run and, you know, the Republican who's currently in the White House doesn't have integrity. Well, I think people will be reassured that you have Reagan supporting parents. And it sounds to me <laughs> like what well, you tell me, are you a flaming liberal or not? No, <laughs> I mean, I'm a Democrat. I'm a lifelong Democrat, you know, but I'm running for D.A. and I understand what it is means to be a prosecutor. And, and that's our job is to prosecute cases and keep our community safe. And so, you know, those are my priorities. My top priority is community safety as it has to be. But at the same time, we need reforms in our system. And I'm the right candidate to bring those reforms. And we're going to bring those reforms in a way that promotes community safety. But, you know, it's time to, to, to tar- start making some changes within the criminal justice system. What kind of people are you going to hire and how are you going to attract them? Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to have a transition team because I, it's the biggest judicial district in the state. It's all of Arapahoe, Douglas, Lincoln, and Elbert counties. So we're serving over 1.1 million people. And so, you know, I think these are going to be, this is the first time we've had a Democrat in the, this office, you know, assuming that I win in probably, I think, 30 years. I think there was one four-year term where we had a Democrat back in the 60s. And otherwise, it's been held by Republicans. So, you know, I'm going to have a transition team. I'm going to work to recruit some of the best prosecutors around the state and also people that are interested in implementing reform and trying to do things, you know, differently because, you know, we've learned, you know, obviously with violent criminals, those people need to serve prison sentences. We know that. But with nonviolent criminals, I think we need to take a different look at how we're treating those individuals and, is there are there better ways to rehabilitate them? And if we do that, can we get our recidivism rates lower, uh, which is going to promote public safety? You brought up the heavily populated 18th Judicial District, and there's a lot of political divergence between Arapahoe County, where I live, and the other counties, Douglas County being the dominant and more conservative county. How will you manage that tension or will you have to? Do you think there's going to be a move in the legislature to split up your judicial district? So they've already passed the law to split it up, but it doesn't go into effect until four years. So in 2024, when I'm hopefully running for re-election, the 18th will only be Arapahoe and the other three counties, Douglas, Lincoln, and Albert, will be the 23rd judicial district. Is that because you live in Arapahoe or you just like us better? <laughs> I live in Arapahoe. I live in Aurora. Nice. And uh, yes. speaking of Aurora, it's been the scene of a lot of civil disorder, quite a demonstration at police headquarters, that incident on I-225. Do you think Brockler resolved that correctly? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think it'd be appropriate for me to comment on specific cases that are pending, and especially since I don't have access to, you know, all the files and things like that. But, you know, I will say this, there is obviously work to be done to repair the relationship between law enforcement and the community, you know, particularly in Aurora. You know, I live just about four or five blocks away from where the family was taken out of the car and the black kids were put face down on on the asphalt and you know we just can't keep having things like this happen in our communities and that's one reason why you know the voters we've been talking to are adamant that we need change and i think you know the repair work that needs to be done i'm ready to do it but i think that repair work is going to be much better received someone coming from the outside rather than someone who's you know been working for brockler for the past 
eight years. And so I look forward to that. And frankly, they're not going to listen to anybody coming from the Trump party because the bigotry is built in. And his failure to see any systematic racism is distressing. Or let me just ask you, do you think there is systematic racism? I do. I definitely do. And, you know, and some people don't, and I understand that, but I'm a numbers person. I'm a data person. I'm actually a scientist by training. I was a chemistry major. My mom was really hoping I'd be a doctor and was disappointed when I decided to be a lawyer instead. So, you know, I've committed to doing an, an audit of our, da- of our prosecution data so we can look, you know, as you know, you know, prosecutors have discretion throughout the life of the case. You know, what kind of, you know, are we asking for cash bail or are we, you know, asking for, you know, saying a PR bond is works or what charging decisions are we making? What pleas are we offering? What sentences are we asking for? Are we offering diversion or some sort of alternative to incarceration to individuals? And let's look at the data and let's see how race has factored into those decisions. And then let's, we need to programs to, or and policies to address that because I, I do believe it's there, but we need, we need data to, to show folks that don't think it's there and so that we can uh, take the steps necessary to address it. The power of a prosecutor is immense. I was a prosecutor for 16 years and it's unbelievable the charging decision, the courtroom action, the discretion that you spoke about. It's an awesome responsibility to be a prosecutor in a big jurisdiction such as you are trying to win. How does that affect you? Do you think that power can go to people's heads? And what will you do to make sure that you use your power wisely? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, 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 there is a, just a lot of power. And it's interesting, these races, you know, particularly, you know, other than like, I, I feel like in Denver, there's often been primary races, as you're well aware of, for for DA. And and sometimes there's a, a contender no, like, general. Let me but, stop you just for one yeah. second, because I was unaffiliated. So I petitioned That's right. on, okay. and I got to yep. compete through November. So it wasn't a primary. It was a doozy right. of a battle in 96. But you got here in 98. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, you know, in a lot of cases, I guess my point was that that these races are sometimes uncontested. You know, for example, the Democrats had no one running against George Brockler four years ago. And the Republicans, I don't think they have anybody running against Beth McCann. Yeah, I think they're the the there's a libertarian candidate, I believe, Bill Robinson, but I think that's it. I think you're correct on that. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but I you know, it seems a particularly with everything going on in the country lately that uh, people are focused on these races in a way that they haven't been before and are, you know, starting to understand the power that the DA has. And, you know, that was something I really kind of saw firsthand as a very young lawyer. I had actually interned at a public defender's office when I was in law school and was kind of leaning towards that as a career path. And then when I was clerking on the federal district court in Washington, D.C. for Harold Green, who was a really great judge, he had been a civil rights lawyer at the Department of Justice, and then he was on the D.C. Superior Court, and then he was on the federal district court. But, you know, it was in the middle of the crack cocaine epidemic. And at that time, the federal sentencing guidelines were mandatory. So three crack cocaine offenses, and it was life in prison. 
And my judge just, you know, he would have these young black men appear in front of us on these offenses. And, you know, at one point he said, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to send this young black man away for life for this offense, because if it had been cocaine, he would not be facing a life sentence. And he declared the sentencing guidelines unconstitutional. And I I told him, I'm like, judge, you're going to get reversed. I'm happy to write this opinion, but you're going to get reversed. And he's like, I know. But, you know, the three judges upstairs can tell me I have to do it, but I'm not going to do it. You know, this is just not fair. This is not the way our justice system should work. But that just, you know, stuck with me for a long time, both the inequities that existed back then and they still continue to persist, but also just the power that prosecutors had. And he often talked about that, that, you know, that, you know, if you really want to make a difference, you know, go be a prosecutor and exercise your discretion in a fair and equitable way and, and try to address some of these um, systemic inequities that we have. And so that's something that's always stuck with me and that will continue to guide my decision making as I move forward. You know what stuck with me? I got hired by the late great Dale Tooley and my mentor was Brooke Wanaki, who was my greatest role model. And their rule in the Denver DA's office was we don't have any rules except to do justice. And the number two rule is see the number one rule. Do the right thing, do justice. And those mandatory minimums get in the way. And way back when, when Dick Lamb was the governor, the legislature in Colorado was thinking about putting in a federal style mandatory minimum with a point system. And Bill Ritter and I got together as frontline prosecutors and wrote a letter to Dick Lamb saying, please don't do this. And it was stopped. And then Joe Biden last night, Amy and I are talking late Friday afternoon. I don't know if you saw Joe Biden say, that is, 94 crime bill got away from him with those mandatory minimums, and he didn't like them either, and it was a mistake. So everything old is new again. I think we have to give discretion. I've seen the pendulum go back and forth, lenient sentencing, the really harsh sentencing. Where do you think we're at on the pendulum now? Do we need to be more lenient or harsh or figure it out? individualize it for different kinds of offenders. Yeah. I mean, I think it has to be a case by case basis. I mean, we have to treat each offender and consider their individual um, circumstances. And I mean, there are some ways that Colorado is progressive, but there are other ways where, you know, the habitual offender laws and things like that. I think those are things that need a need a new look, need to see some reform there. But I mean, again, I think we need to look at each case individually. I think that's key to doing justice, as you you pointed out. And that was always the philosophy, you know, when I was at the Department of Justice at the U.S. Attorney's Office for over 10 years, you know, that our job was to do justice. Um, and so we need to do that. And you you can't do that if you are have, you know, these rigid guidelines like the federal sentencing guidelines used to be where you had a score, you know, here's a criminal history score, here's a severity offense score, and it was a grid and there was a sentence. And so, you know, we need to be able to take into to account individual circumstances. Look at that, a data-driven lady rejecting data. <laughs> Amy, it's great to talk to you. What do you think about another Amy, Amy Coney Barrett? And before we go to her, why don't you say a few words about the passing of the notorious Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Yeah. I you know, so sad, sad when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. So she had been, I was still in law school when she was confirmed. I think she was confirmed in 93. And 
I just, I remember the excitement about that. And, you know, we would watch the confirmation hearings on our breaks during classes. And just, she, you know, she really led the way for women's equality. I mean, we have rights as women that we probably wouldn't have to the same degree right now if it wasn't for RBG. And so, you know, her passing is, it was very heartbreaking. So she was just such an incredible public servant. So to be honest, I haven't been watching the confirmation hearings because I've been a little busy with a few other things. <laughs> so, Well, then let me tell you, because I've been a little homebound and I'm fascinated. Amy Coney Barrett is one of the smartest lawyers I've ever seen or judges. No notes. She knows big cases backwards and forwards. Her intellect is off the charts, Amy. She's just a brainiac. You can see why she was number one in her class. Now, yeah. I'm not I'm not vouching for her good judgment or anything right. else, but <laughs> she is brilliant. She really is. What do you think when I tell you that? Are you saying, well, that's that's not enough? Well, I don't think that's enough. And, you know, again, I haven't been watching. I don't know anything about her. That's definitely we do need brilliant people on the Supreme Court. That's that's important. You know, uh, my concern is about this process that, you know, how it's being rammed through uh, right before the election, after everything that happened with Merrick Garland in the past. And uh, th- these these are life appointments. And, you know, we've seen that that President Trump has been packing the courts with, you know, very conservative individuals who all have life appointments. And uh, some of them have very little experience. I mean, he's making, you know, lots of there's been several cases I understand where he's, you know, appointed someone to the federal district bench. So they're going to be a, a district court judge for life overseeing federal trials that have never tried a case. No, it's bad. And, and, and these conservatives who say, well, I don't like Trump personally, but I love his judicial appointments. Okay. The Supreme court's okay. going to be a six, three, you got 300 judges. How much more do you want? Can't you find a decent person to put forth a pro-life or pro-gun position? I mean, I had to get that yeah. off my chest. I hope that's okay. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, this is this is the most con- one of the most concerning parts of the past four years as a lawyer, in my view, is this packing of the courts. And, you know, I felt like this the the federal judge appointment process used to be much less partisan than it is right now. And it just seems that, you know, they are not. The Republicans are not even trying to find, you know, someone who's like a, a compromise candidate or anything like that. They're trying to find the most conservative, youngest people that they can, you know, put someone in their 30s on. They may serve for 50 years because there's no mandatory retirement for federal judges. They they serve for life. And so that's very concerning. 50 appellate appointments. And Kamala Harris taught me that not a one is a minority. That's really something. That is really something. What do you think of Kamala? I like Kamala. So I've actually had the opportunity to meet Kamala. It's interesting to me to hear how she's viewed by each side. You know, within even my own party, there are some people that think she's not, quote unquote, progressive enough because she was the DA in San Francisco and she was the AG in California and whatnot. And then, you know, I have my Republican friends who, you know, think that she's she's way too liberal. But it's interesting that only she gets that type of criticism. And I think, you know, 
things like that are often lobbied at women. And, you know, I, I am a fan of hers. I'm again, I've met her personally. I think she's doing an amazing job on the campaign trail. I think she's been a great Senator and I really look forward to having her as a vice president. Well, I look forward to you being the DA in the 18th judicial district. Now it might not seem fair because I haven't talked to John Kellner, but if he gets word of this and if he wants to come on and say that, he doesn't want to support Donald Trump, then I will trust his judgment. But Amy Patton, can you tell me that you are not casting a vote for Donald Trump? <laughs> yes, I already voted and I voted for Joe Biden. So, so all that makes you my choice because that demonstrates good judgment, in my opinion. And, you know, part of it is silliness, but part of it is my heartfelt belief that Donald Trump represents the greatest danger to my Arapahoe County family of any man on earth. Am I right to feel that way? Yeah, I, to be honest, I feel the same way. I mean, just and every time I think, oh, this can't get any worse than it does. <laughs> um, and it's just I mean, I'm scared. I'm scared for the future of our country if, God forbid, he gets reelected because there more people are going to die from COVID, first of all. But, you know, it's just, this, this is not sustainable. I mean, we have all been in a pretty bad place for the past four years. And I think people are, you know, holding on by a thread that the election is here and we're getting to vote. And we see how badly the Republicans are trying to suppress the vote. And the reason they're trying to suppress the vote is because they know that voters are sick and tired of this. And so, you know, I think everyone's really looking forward just as much as I am to having this election be over with and being able to try to put our country back together and get people's lives on, back on the same track. But yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, who, who would have thought that we would end up in the situation that we are right now. And so we really need everyone to exercise their right to vote to make sure that the, their voices are heard um, in this election, because this is absolutely the most important election of our lives. What would happen if you were the DA? There's a hypothetical. So get ready for that dodge right away. Okay. You're the DA <laughs> and the president said, I'm holding a rally in Colorado as if we were a swing state anymore, Trump is going to get trounced here. And that's why Amy Patton is going to win. But say he wanted to hold a rally at Fiddler's Green and everybody was on top of each other in violation of public health orders by Tri-County and Jared Polis. Does the DA enforce those laws? Have you thought about that? Public health laws, which might be enforced by your office down the road? Yeah, so I think it depends on what that public health order says, to be honest. So I think, for example, where there was that rally out in Jefferson County Bandemir, at the Bandemir rights. I think the, the city attorney represented right. Jeff Cohen Court. Correct. I think that's the case. So I think it would depend on what the public order you know, said. I just am envisioning you walking on stage and handcuffing Donald Trump in Rappahoe County <laughs> at Fiddler's Green. <laughs> Isn't that a nice image? No, we don't want oh, anything. That bad. is a nice image. <laughs> I and but at the same time, it's like golf. You know, every missed putt makes somebody happy because Donald Trump is going to get trounced in Colorado. And I believe in the 18th J.D. That's going to inure to your benefit. It already has in this interview. So maybe that's the silver lining. We will get Amy Patton as D.A. 
hopefully Joe Biden as president, Kamala Harris as VP. I'm sure hoping for that. And that means I'm wishing the best for you, Amy. You are a terrific guest. And will you maintain this level of transparency once you get all that power? Yeah, I absolutely will. And I appreciate your your words, Craig. That really means a lot. But that's been critically important to me that we have a more transparent office down there. And I've been, for example, I've been doing town halls throughout the course of this year. We've done about eight so far. Uh, my opponent didn't do a single one until after the ballots had already been mailed. And I, I intend to keep doing that. And, you know, DAs, I know usually don't do town halls, but, you know, let's be out there in the community. Let's be listening to what the community wants, what their concerns are, what their safety concerns are about, you know, how the office is interacting with the community. And we need more of that within DA offices. What about debates? Have you had any with Kellner? Yes. So we had one that was on PBS 12 about a week and a half ago. Maybe it was about two weeks ago. And then we had a forum hosted by the um, CCJRC for action that was about 10 days ago, I believe. And then they, after that, they made their endorsement decision and they decided to endorse me. Who won the debate? I think I did. (laughs) But the voters can decide. I'll look that up on PBS 12. I was on Colorado Inside Out not that long ago. We didn't talk about your race, but we talked about other things. I really enjoyed talking to you. Just finally, and again, the rule of law. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's under threat. We've talked about abstract threats, but you and I are both lawyers. I'm worried about the rule of law. Are you and what can you do to make sure it still works for people in this jurisdiction? Yeah, I'm very worried about the rule of law. And, you know, one of the reasons, I mean, I, I had to leave the U.S. Attorney's Office in order to run for AG. But at the same time, I felt like I couldn't stay because it no longer stood for the rule of law. And and I was hired by a Republican U.S. attorney when I started there. I mean, I worked for Republicans. I worked for John Southers. I worked for Tor Eide. But the way that department was being run, it just was ignoring the rule of law. And, and frankly, it's gotten even worse. You know, when I left, Jeff, Jeff Sessions was the AG. And, you know, I was concerned about the way the DOJ was being run then. But little did I know what Bill Barr was going to do. It makes me sad because the Department of Justice has always been such, you know, a pillar of our democracy and it has been an independent institution and, you know, has stood for the rule of law and, you know, enforced our laws regardless of, you know, what the affiliation is of the individual being investigated. And that's not being done right now. You know, Bill Barr's using it essentially as an arm of the White House. That's not okay, Um, And so I'm not going to, you know, let anything like that happen when I'm the next district attorney. It's you know important to me that we respect the rule of law. It's important to me that everyone be treated fairly. And and that's what I'm going to do as the next district attorney. Nice. Beautifully said. My sister is a veterinarian and I expect she has special interest in animal rights, although all of us care. But as lawyers, We need to safeguard this judicial system and make it work correctly. And I'm especially disappointed in people who are friends of mine and lawyers like George Brockler, like Cory Gardner, who won't stand up to a renegade president who acts like a mobster and who has appointed Bill Barr to screw up the rule of law. And that's why I'm supporting Amy Patton and people like her in this election. This is not a normal time. I urge you all to vote that same way. Amy Patton, I hope that endorsement makes you happy. And I hope you bring great pride to the office because I expect you are going to win. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yes. And I'm, I'm honored to have your endorsement. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, Amy Patton, thanks for being in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Next time, I expect you'll be the DA. Yep. I'll be happy to come back in January. We can catch up then. Thanks so I'm much. Sure we'll be in a different spot at that point. <laughs> All right. Be well and be safe. Thank you, Amy Patton. Okay. Thank you. Hey, will you just do this for me? Go to my website at CraigSilvermanShow.com. Scroll down and look at that picture of my pal, Dan Levitt. He's a professional sales trainer and coach with Sandler Training. Now, Sandler has been doing this for many decades with great success. If you are in the sales business, then you need some training. Maybe you have already had it. God bless you. But if you feel like you are falling short, that you could learn some skills that could increase your income, Sandler knows what to do, and my friend Dan Levitt knows as well. Look at his face on my website and tell me if that little smile on his face does not make you want to smile back. I do, and I don't smile all the time. But Dan Levitt is fun to talk to, and he will give you a great deal if you say, Craig sent me. Call Dan Levitt. First look at his picture, smile back, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107 for the best possible deal. Tell Dan Craig sent me. Thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBL LLC.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Let's talk about that sad killing of Lee Keltner by Matthew Doloff last Saturday afternoon. Right after my podcast aired where I predicted violence around that Civic Center Park event thrown by the so-called Patriot Muster. I wrote about this matter in my column that runs in the Colorado Sun on Monday morning. Now I have seen even more video, and let me provide my analysis. This case will be almost impossible to prove. Second-degree murder charges are unlikely to result in a guilty verdict in Denver District Court. Doloff will raise self-defense and argued that he was entitled to use force, including deadly force, 
to repel what he reasonably believed to be imminent use of force that could cause him death or serious bodily injury. Serious bodily injury is not that much. It includes a broken nose, a fracture of any kind, irreparable damage to your body, a scar. He had no idea exactly what his shooting victim was reaching for, but let me suggest some following evidence that is going to make this case extremely hard for the prosecution to prove. If Dolov saw those magazines inside the coat pocket and perceived that Keltner had a weapon, a deadly weapon, a revolver, a pistol, some firearm of his own, was it reasonable for him to believe that he was coming up with a gun? But beyond that, it appears that Keltner slapped Dolov. And it wasn't just a normal slap. It was a slap by a hand that had four hard rings on the fingers, and it appeared another ring around the thumb, the equivalent of brass knuckles. That's what I saw on the part of Keltner, who appears to have gone to that event with the potentiality of violence in mind. So did Dolop. They met. Tragic consequence. Dolop arrested, Keltner dead. I can tell you as a veteran prosecutor and a criminal justice practitioner, especially in Denver, Colorado, do not expect a guilty verdict. Another fact that will be relevant and no doubt explored by the defense team, was Keltner animated to go over to Dolop and the producer that he was protecting and tell them he was going to F them up. That's so damaging to the prosecution and supportive of the self-defense claim. What does F you up mean? Does it mean just a little slap? Or if you're going to get effed up, is it reasonable to expect possible serious bodily injury thus justifying the use of deadly force? And where would Keltner get this animosity for the media, and in particular, Nine News? Well, one place he could get it is from KNUS, where every host seems to have crosshairs on Kyle Clark and Nine News. Listen to the boss over there, the morning host, the nonstop castigation of Kyle Clark and Nine News. Was Keltner a listener? Did that motivate him to go over and tell Nine News to put away their cameras and stop filming? I don't know, but we may find out. And now who writes in on the Keltner side, on the KNUS side? Of course, Michelle Malkin, the mother of the Groypers and the Proud Boys. She's in bed with white supremacists, and she has it in for Denver and Michael Hancock. And she is calling out Nine News, as you might expect, but we call her out. The ADL, Anti-Defamation League, has called out Michelle Malkin, a hate monger if there ever was one, in bed with the white supremacists and the Donald Trump types. Quite a drama going on in Denver, Colorado. And we are ahead of the curve. I don't think I've ever predicted violence before. And it came true, sadly, on the streets of Denver, right behind the Denver Public Library, built in 1955. I know that back area is so darn well between the art museum and the library. What is happening to our beautiful city of Denver? 
get people worked up on the media being the enemy of the people, especially Nine News? And is it unexpected that violence follows? Did you see where Boulder was ranked number one place to live in America and Denver number two? Michelle Malkin hates that. She hates Denver. I don't much care for Michelle Malkin. I don't like bigotry. I don't like white supremacy. I don't like Trumpsterism. But you've known that. I'm going to keep covering this interesting case involving the prosecution by my old office, the Denver DA's office, representing the people of the state of Colorado versus Matthew Dolop. Keep coming back for further analysis. We will be right back. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Michael Bailey, how's it going during this pandemic era? Are you being sustained by BYU football? Well, they're better than the Broncos, so that's a good thing. I enjoy watching them play. (laughs) Yeah, with the Broncos, you can count on them to lose. BYU has a fun team. I mean, I know they were supposed to win bigger last week, but... Sometimes you got to win ugly, even against a team you're supposed to beat. They have a receiver named Gunnar Romney, who's a bit of a sensation. Yep. What about a Romney playing football? You know, it's I, there, there are worse things that could happen. Than, I mean, you've got Gunnar Romney, who's the receiver. You've got Baylor Romney, who's the quarterback. Apparently, there's lots of Romneys out there. Yes, I've read that biography. It starts in Mexico and then it moves to Utah. You know the story better than most. Michael Bailey, a fine graduate of Brigham Young University. There's a lot of pride in the people who go to that school. I admire that. Well, we, we try to enjoy our school and make it represent and make it proud as we're proud of it. I went to Colorado College where there has been some outbreak of COVID. People combined to their dorm. What about Brigham Young? How have they weathered the pandemic storm? So BYU has had some COVID cases. You know, they're limiting class size. And like I have, we have a friend actually who her roommate contracted COVID. So they were all quarantined for a couple of weeks. Uh, but for a university that has 35,000 students, they're not doing too bad. They're trying to survive. That's because they don't drink and gather and do all the bad things that other college kids do. That's an advantage. Maybe I'll send my kid to BYU. Is, is gathering really a bad thing? I mean, you know. It is these <laughs> you days. You can still gather COVID. and have fun. Sure. But, you know, on, along the lines of gathering and things, or, you know, drinking and smoking and doing drugs, gathering, I don't know. It seems like it's a situational bad thing. Not only during times of COVID. So that's just my my take on it. Michael Bailey, the basketball season has ended. How about those Denver Nuggets? I haven't talked to you since they came back from 3-1 down. They lost in the semis, but to the Lakers, that's no great disgrace. I enjoyed the basketball season. I don't know what I'm going to do without 
Well, I guess we get to wait until the next one starts. But how about you? Aren't you about to start roughing some high school basketball? Well, the the high school basketball season has been pushed back to start in January instead of in early December like it normally does. I think that's an idea is to kind of see how things are going to is If we are able to play, if we can do it as safely as possible. You know, with the NBA, they had the ability to put everybody in a bubble. Can't exactly put all the high school kids in a bubble and go play basketball. So we have to figure out how to play safely yet enjoyably. And that hasn't quite played itself out yet. We're kind of hoping that by January we'll have a few less cases and you know have it a little bit more where it's safe to go play basketball. But we'll see what happens. Michael Bailey, how do you do it all? You are a father of a big family. You have an active law practice, yet you still referee high school sports. Why do you keep your hand in the game that way? Is it to keep in shape or why do you do it? Multiple reasons. Number one, I love the game of basketball. I've played it. I just enjoy the game of basketball. And this is a way that I can stay involved without needing to to hire an undersized, overweight well, I was not great at the ability. Um, <laughs> you know, that's me. Um, so you, know, you find a way to stay involved with the things that you love and the things you enjoy. And this is a way for me to stay involved. And, you know, I just, I enjoy the game. And, you know, when the games are played are after normal business hours. I can get to the games and still do that, but give my business the time it needs and give my family the time it needs. So tell everybody about your practice. Who should be calling you for your legal work? Anybody who does not have an estate plan. So if you do not have a will or you do not have a power of attorney or you don't have a trust or anybody who has one of those that is several years old or that has been your life circumstances have changed. So, you know, if you moved here from uh, New Mexico, things have changed a little bit. Nothing against New Mexico, but it's a different state. You know, if your kids were younger and now they're grown, your life circumstances are different. So you can, you want to do something different. You know, I mean, my kids are still minor children. So my planning is different from my parents who all of their kids are grown adults. That brings up my life change. My youngest, Sam, turned 18 earlier in October. I realized that was a big deal. One of the questions that you asked Trish and me is what happens if, God forbid, something happens to Sam's parents? That's a big issue. Who's going to take care of your kids? Now I'm out of the woods on that. (laughs) Well, as as my mom would say, it's much more difficult to be the parents of adult children because you still want what's best for them, but they make their own decision. You can't choose for them. So you, you may not be... You may not be out of the woods completely on raising your child, but you're also not legally responsible for caring for them now that they're an adult. Right, and the plans we wrote down are rendered moot. I know enough to know that. Tell everybody how they can get a hold of the Michael Bailey Law Firm. Well, you can call me at 720-394-6887. That's 720-394-6887. 6887, or you can find me online at michaelbaileylawllc.com. That's michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there's a 
you can find a you know, book an appointment here button website. It's easy to use. I've always wanted to ask you, yep. as we think about basketball and Michael Bailey, the famous Michael of basketball fame. You don't even have to say the last name, Michael Jordan. And then I think about mm-hmm. other famous Michaels. I'm reading the book by Michael Cohen, maybe not the best exemplar of your name, but he references a portion of his work at the Trump administration where he had to do things that nobody else wanted to do. And he referenced that 1970s commercial. I think it was for a healthy brand of cereal that they had Mikey try. Let Mikey try it. Mike, Mikey will eat that. Did you ever get taunted with that Mikey stuff? Well, you know, I, I knew that I knew that I liked life brand cereal. So I didn't have to be concerned about it. They're like, Mikey likes it. And I'm like, yeah, so what of it? Yeah. It is a great name, Michael. Isn't it referring to some <laughs> top angel or something like that? It is the, in uh, Christian theology, it is Michael is the archangel. So that in the chief among the angels, yes. Well, that's not a bad status. You're chief among our estate lawyers. Trish and I never regretted <laughs> going to Michael Bailey. He's got our important documents. We've got a copy. He asks the right questions. His rates are reasonable. We really recommend Michael Bailey. Michael, thanks a lot for sponsoring the podcast. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Michael Bailey, your number again for people who want to reach you. 720-394-6887. Perfect. Michael, thanks again, and I'll talk to you soon. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. What a world, what a day, what a life. What a life that's been led by our next guest, Kent Theory. He was the CEO of DeVita, Colorado's biggest company, I do believe. He's also dabbled in politics. His friends call him KT. Can I call you KT? Absolutely. Welcome, KT. Thanks for doing this show. I've been fascinated by you. I I learned people call you KT by reading that infamous 5280 article about you. Did you enjoy that article or not? Oh, you know how it works with the the media, Craig, more than anyone, that that sometimes they're too nice to you. Sometimes they can be a little sharp and you got to roll with the punches. It was an entertaining article and I learned a lot about you. I don't know how much is true. But it's an honor to speak with you now. Tell us about the Kent Theory story. Well, that would bore your listeners to death, I think. But I was raised in Wisconsin and got exposed to Colorado and vowed that I would live here someday. And finally, I got to do that 11 years ago. And and now after 20 years of being CEO of DeVita or mayor of the DeVita Village, as we called it internally, I've, I've stepped down and I'm spending most of my time on public service, which it's been my dream since I was a little boy. And you can do even more public service after DeVita rose, what, over 2% today? We record on Friday afternoon. Tell us about DeVita. I know it deals with kidney dialysis, but tell us more. Yeah, DeVita, as I mentioned, we called it the DeVita Village, and my title was mayor. We believed we were a community first and a company second. We were a clinical innovator over the 20 years and a clinical leader But equally important, we paid a lot of attention to trying to take care of our teammates and help them grow personally as well as professionally. And we ended up with 65,000 teammates across 12 countries 
and, and hopefully for thousands of them, we help them lead more fulfilling lives in addition to giving them a paycheck and benefits. And are you the guy responsible for DeVita coming to the state that you always wanted to come to Colorado? Well, I, I conducted a democratic process and, and fortunately the overwhelming majority of executives and board members agreed uh, that once we decided to move out of California, that Denver was the place to come. Now, I did make very clear that it was my preference, and I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but there was, there was a vote, and we did compare it to a number of other cities, but I was a fervent advocate of coming to Colorado because it's one of those states which is still a community. It's not just a collection of people. It's not just a collection of residents. It actually still has a lot of citizens. What year was that decision made for DeBita to move from California to Colorado? 2008-2009, right? During the financial crisis, we made the decision and we made the announcement. And again, part of the logic was that Colorado was a state that might be able to solve 21st century problems, unlike a lot of other states, which are too, too polarized. In retrospect, was that the right move? Has it worked out for the company and for your family? It's been great for, for both. For DeVita, we feel like this is our natural habitat because uh, we're a community-oriented company, and this is a community-oriented state. And so I think it really worked. And, and we had people who moved here from, from L.A., from Chicago, New York, Atlanta. A lot of them just moved because they wanted to work for DeVita, and they always thought that when they left DeVita that they would go back. And it was amazing to us, roughly 90% of the people that we got to move here for DeVita would never leave again. They don't want to go back to the place they lived before, even though they thought they would. We definitely are going to talk about the Gallagher Amendment. That's one of the reasons that I wanted you on. It's so complicated for us to figure out. But another complicated subject, and it seemed for a while that DeVita and KT, my new friend, were going to be involved in fixing health care in America. Didn't you have those kind of aspirations? We think back to 2008, 2009, when Obamacare was being proposed. Did you have dreams and visions of how health care should really work in America, KT? Absolutely. We first wanted to transform how kidney care works and worked in America, but then wanted, wanted to broaden to other populations. And it's one of my lifetime disappointments that while we made great progress in transforming kidney care in America, we did not succeed in moving beyond kidney care. We're not done yet. While I'm gone, my successor, Javier Rodriguez, and the rest of the team can take another swing at that. So we're sort of, we were one for two. We, we did a lot of good in advancing kidney care in ways that are holistic and humanistic and innovative. But on the broader healthcare scene, we, we were disappointed. I was disappointed in my impact. What was it that brought you to uh, work on kidney disease? Was it just a business opportunity or had it affected your life? My brother suffered with it and I saw all the horrors of dialysis, kidney transplant. My brother's gone now, but I'm aware of this situation and it touched my life personally. How about for you? Well, I was kind of the opposite. I was 35 years old and, and a partner at a consulting firm. And I decided I wanted to become an executive, which I had always known I, I wanted to be. 
And I interviewed with a gentleman who was the CEO of a dialysis company. And I accepted because he he decided he wanted me to be his successor. And I thought I would just stay for a couple of years to prove that this 35-year-old former consultant could become a real live competent CEO. And so I planned on leaving after a couple of years uh, because I thought I would find other parts of healthcare more exciting or more dramatic or more glamorous. And, and so I came intending to just stay for a short time. And instead, I, I totally fell in love with it. And in particular, I fell in love with the kind of people who take care of dialysis patients that, that I think taking care of sick people in that way, where you're with them every single week and with their families every week, it really changes you as a human being and makes you more humane, more thoughtful, sort of having a deeper soul. And so I got to work with thousands of nurses, technicians, dietitians, social workers who were growing because they got to touch the magic of taking care of those patients. That is cool. I mean, people who tend to sick people, it's fantastic. And you really extended my brother's life. Dialysis did. What percentage of the dialysis market does DeVita have? We had a lot of good luck. We grew quite a bit. When I started, we were about a billion dollars in revenue, and we're now about 11 billion. And we take care of almost four out of every 10 dialysis patients in America. Back 20 years ago, it was a tiny, tiny fraction. But fortunately, a lot of physicians chose us. A lot of patients chose us. And, and we built new clinics, bringing care more to a more local setting for literally thousands and tens of thousands of patients. And so, and so we grew quite a bit. If you do your job well, the market rewards you. As a CEO, do you look at the market all the time or do you just look once a week? What's it like to be a CEO of, what is it, a Fortune 500 company? How big is DeVita? Well, at our peak, we were about a Fortune 200 or Fortune 250 company. I think now we're about a Fortune 350 company. So one of the, one of the 350 biggest companies in America with, again, about 65,000 teammates at this point, 56,000 of those in the U.S., just in 11 other countries. So it was, it was a, a very good run. And, and as the mayor of the village, which was my title, you had to not only look at your patient care and not only look at your teammate care, but you did also have to pay attention to your shareholders. And so what we always said is that you, you never want to say that one is more important than the other. And certainly patient care and teammate care come first. You can't, it's like air and water. You can't choose between those two because if you don't take good care of your teammates, they can't do beautiful things for the patient. But even though those are the most important things, it is essential that you have a successful business model so that you can survive and invest in innovation and invest in improvements. And so you got to pay a lot of attention to that, that, that pesky financial market as well, which is always demanding. But if you do it right, you get rewarded. That's your fiduciary responsibility. I learned that much to pass corporations in law school. And what about that? Corporations, do they have a heart and soul? I don't know. It seems to me that your fundamental responsibility is to make a profit for the shareholders. How do you fit in a heart and soul? That wasn't part of what they taught us in law school. Well, and I really I disagreed. And one of the things I'm encouraged about is if you talk to 30-year-olds today, 
comparing to 30-year-olds when I was 30, there's much more of uh, an, an enlightened consciousness uh, now than there was then. Some of the things we did at DeVita were considered just radical. The reference to the village, saying out loud that it's not our job to maximize shareholder value. We absolutely will, will bust our, 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 bust our butts, excuse me, to, to, to make sure that we try to get a reasonable return on capital to the people who parted with their hard earned dollars to invest in us. So we took that very seriously, but that was the means and not the end. The means was we had to have a successful, sustainable business, just like if you were mayor of a village, you have to have a sustainable economy in that village or that city or that state, or you can't take care of your constituents. So you have to have a sound economy, but that's the means. The end was to try to create better patient care and a better place for people to work. And I think that concept has been growing in its acceptance over the last 10, 15 years in America. I like to think that DeVita was a part of stimulating that dialogue. And I think this next generation is going to take that pace and advance it a bunch. But it comes down to what we're going to discuss with the Gallagher Amendment. What is the right way to cut up the pie? And at DeVita, before we move on to the Gallagher Amendment, how is the pie cut up? There are lots of complaints about CEO pay being out of touch with workers' pay. Is that a problem in America? Has DeVita confronted that? How does it work? Yeah, certainly I think what a CEO or what executives should be paid or what basketball players should be paid or actors and actresses should be paid deserves a very healthy dialogue. And there's no magical answer. What I can say is when, when people in any of those positions who are lucky enough to get paid a bunch more than others, then it's incumbent on them to share. It's incumbent on them, okay, go ahead and have a slightly nicer car, go out to a nicer restaurant, but also know that you got lucky. You got to, you got to live in a community that had, that had laws that made the accumulation of higher pay possible and that you ought to pay it forward and give back. And so I think what DeVita took very seriously was doing profit sharing with our teammates, with doing unusual levels of investment in their personal and professional growth. I'll give, I'll give one quick example, Craig. We, had, we did a thing called an academy. Every single teammate in North America was invited to come for two days to a meeting, and we paid for, uh, paid for all of this. And it was not about applied training. It was about our mission, our values, our language. It was about their lives. And, and you'd have a technician who made $15 an hour sitting next to a doctor who makes $300,000 a year sitting right next to a nurse who was sitting right next to a Harvard MBA. There were no titles at this meeting. We're all equal before the mission. We had a lot of people who had never been on an airplane, uh, a lot of people who had never checked into a hotel because that just wasn't a part of their lives. They came from rural America, from all over America. Where was this meeting? We moved it all over the country. So thousands of teammates a year would go there because what we wanted to do was talk about what it really means to be a community, what it means to be a village, and, and how could we help each of us realize our full potential as human beings. I think the cool thing is you got all those people to fly there on their own private jets. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, <laughs> how, how many private jets do you have, KT? Uh, I have zero. None? What about when you were with the beta? Do you have access to some private jets? Come on. We weren't yeah, we, wrong. We, I don't get to talk to CEOs that often. We never we never owned one, but yes, we did use some. 
it was a tremendous productivity tool. Allowed you to go to one city for breakfast, work all day, go to a dinner, and then at 10 o'clock at night, hop back on that plane to get to the next city to do it over again. So in any given week, you could double the number of cities, double the number of meetings, double the number of breakfasts and lunches, because you could keep moving when other people had to stop. I don't know what the right formula is between CEO pay and worker pay and everybody in between, but I can tell you that the last thing that should happen is I get to decide how it's ratioed because I don't know your business. And that brings me to the Gallagher Amendment and Ref B. And I just kind of resent at the outset that as a citizen, reasonably intelligent citizen, that I'm supposed to come up with the formula of a fair division between business taxes and property taxes. Can you get me past my disappointment that I have to get involved in these things? I've been complaining about this for a while in Colorado. What do we have legislatures for? Why do I have to do it? I don't know what the proper ratio is. Yeah, no, it is, it is, it is a rough one. And I'm a little bit in a different spot, Craig, and that I have just so much faith in the people and their voting that I, I like the fact that in our state, some things are worked on by the legislature and sometimes the, the people themselves can step in. Uh, having said that, the, the fact that things like the Gallagher Amendment are in the Constitution, that is just terrible because that makes it almost impossible or in some cases impossible for the legislature to change. It has to go to the people, and and that's why Gallagher legitimately angers you, because this formula never should have been in the Constitution, so that legislators could have played with it instead of just being able to put it on the ballot. You're absolutely right. And I'm sure I said it back in the day when the Gallagher Amendment was put to a vote. How the heck are citizens supposed to decide something like this? But the reality is now we have to, and now you are. Uh, taking a strong stand on the Gallagher Amendment. Tell us about it, KT. Yeah, when they when people first came to me and asked me to lead this initiative to repeal, to vote yes on Amendment B, and by the way, going to yes, uh, yes at AmendmentB.com is the place where people can get more information on this complicated subject. But when I was approached, I said, oh, no, you know, I've, I've run four initiatives before, but this one is so complicated and so much in the weeds and so technical that I just don't want to do it. But they asked me to stare at it more. And I was so appalled at how unfair it is and how much it hurts a lot of communities and it hurts our overall economy that I finally said, uh, gosh, kind of like our conversation before, Craig, given how lucky I've been, if, if I'm not willing to step up and work on this, who the heck can I expect to do it if not me? And so I did agree to go after this. And hopefully we'll get it repealed and that will help everybody in Colorado. Well, break it down for us. I'm a homeowner. Won't my taxes go up? Why should I vote against my interests in that way? Yes, it it is absolutely false. Your taxes will not go up. In fact, Amendment B freezes the taxes and then the Taxpayer Bill of Rights still applies 100%. Nobody can raise your residential rate or a non-residential rate, a business rate, without a vote of the people. So it is 1 million percent false to say your taxes will go up. Having said that, if, if we do not repeal, there is a chance that for some people, their assessment rate might go down. 
it might go down further than it is. Let's talk about that, because that sounds pretty darn attractive on the surface. But because this policy was put in place 40 years ago, back 40 years ago, the residential rate and the business rate were virtually identical. Now it's 29% assessment rate for business, only 7% for homeowners. Our homeowner property rates are the third lowest in America. That's great. We should celebrate it. We absolutely should be proud of that. And Amendment B freezes it right there, and Tabor doesn't allow a legislature to raise it. Having said that, it has come at a great cost that we can't continue, which is to say, when you start having places like Denver that are growing in population, growing in home values, and therefore they're going to get, because of Gallagher, a bigger percentage of the state property tax revenues then suddenly the other half of Colorado, that's not having big population growth, that's not having big home value increases, suddenly their tax collections plummet. They didn't vote for it, they didn't ask for that, and now suddenly they've got shortfalls. And so the other half of Colorado is stuck with a terrible choice. Either number one, they can raise their local taxes to make up for what Gallagher took away from them, and gave to Denver and Boulder, and the high growth places, so they can either raise local taxes, but if they do choose that one, the law Gallagher uh, requires that they tax business at four times the rate of residential, those numbers I mentioned before. And if we don't repeal Gallagher, it goes to five times next year. So five times the rate, that just crushes small business, so they can't hire people, Sometimes they have to let people go. They can't offer health care benefits. So either you choose to raise local rates, which has all those negative effects on small business in our communities, or you have to cut services. You have to shut down one ambulance or have the ambulances come after two hours instead of 12 minutes. You have to let firefighters go so that we can't even contain our fires, which we see every day now, the effects of that. You have less money for schools. You have less money for police. And so the current formula gives more money to the high growth parts of the state, takes money away from the, from the average growth or, or low growth parts of the state, and puts them in that terrible spot where both their choices are losers. We agree that something like this should not be in the Constitution. With Ref B, does it just modify what's in the Constitution? Because I hear you saying that there are going to be locked-in property rates. Won't we have to fix that 10 years from now? The, uh, if we pass Amendment B, we'll be, uh, the, the rates will be out of the Constitution. There will no longer be that mandatory split. The rates are frozen. The legislature can move the rates down, but they can't move it up. And I should mention one other thing, Craig, since you're asking such good, quite rigorous questions, that if we, don't, if we don't repeal B this time, what happens next year? $250 million of local tax increases are already guaranteed to, to kick in if we don't repeal Gallagher, and $600 million in service cuts. So again, that other half of Colorado that's not growing fast, but has the same number of students and patients and fires one year that they did the next, they are looking at a drop of $600 million in funding for those services without any change in their population, without any change in their needs, and $250 million of tax increases, most of which has to be shouldered by small business. 
This has been in the works for a while. Who came up with this idea for Ref B? How did it come about? It was referred by the legislature. And how long have you been involved in it, KT? You know, it's a great question, Craig. I don't know for sure who came up with it because I got approached by a bunch of people, a, a committee of legislators, Republicans and Democrats. One of the amazing things about this, we all know that our legislature here in Colorado this year has been very polarized. We all know the country legislatively has been very polarized. So in, in that environment, 74% of all the legislators voted in favor of putting this on the ballot. So an incredible amount of bipartisanship. Also, our endorsements are coming from the left, the right, and the middle. And so I don't actually know who came up with the idea, but I know an, an incredibly unusual combination of Republicans and Democrats came to me and said, hey, you know, we did, we did a lot of work here on a bipartisan basis to put this in the ballot. You know, will you come? And, you know, I talk, Craig, about tripartisan, Democrats, Republicans, and independents, because nice. I'm, a, I'm a fierce independent. Well, you are um, on the and, island of independence right here. So that's why I like <laughs> you presumptively, KT. We're men without a party, and we're proud of that. I know I am, and I expect you are, too. Yeah, darn straight we are. So, so keep going. When did they get you involved? Well, so they, they came and, uh, and I had the reaction that I articulated and I, but then I took six weeks to, to study it. And so just a few months ago, I said, okay, you know, not a lot of time, but let's, let's hop on this. And we, we have put together a, an incredible tripartisan coalition. I mean, we've got chambers everywhere from Boulder to Greeley and Loveland and Colorado Springs. We have, you know, Senator Hank Brown, uh, the Republican budget hawk uh, from the R side, and John Southers, the, the Republican mayor of Colorado Springs. And at the same time, we've got a majority of all the Democratic legislators uh, and Governor Polis. And so it's, it's a remarkably broad and deep politically nonpartisan coalition of, uh, of backers. I like that. Does the pandemic increase the urgency of your argument or how does it affect things? Yeah, it, it should make it even more evident to people if we can get the information out, which is why being able to be on your podcast is such a, a good thing for our democracy. Because I, I mentioned just how brutally unfair uh, this is to small business, where they're paid four times now and it moves to five times. But now you put that COVID on top of it and and Craig, by way of making this real, I'm also the chair of a thing called the Colorado Gap Fund, where we've raised over $30 million to give loans and grants to small businesses to help them survive this period. And if you read 20 or 30 applications, you, your heart would hurt because of uh, when you see the, the trauma that these businesses and the families and communities associated with it are, are going through. And we, got, we have over 6,000 of those applications from real businesses real families across Colorado fighting to survive. And so it, without COVID, this kind of property tax burden gets in the way of hiring somebody, gets in the way of giving a raise, gets in the way of offering health care. But in COVID, it actually means that this big property tax bill means you're going to have to let somebody go. It means you think about moving to another state. And you certainly don't think about expanding. It's just an absolute tragedy. And and therefore, you know, what I always say, gosh, maybe some people in Denver or Boulder would end up having a lower rate on their million-dollar home, and they can celebrate that. But when it means that the Pueblo, the, the Pueblo bike shop closes down or the Durango restaurant closes down 
or another five firefighters are laid off. That doesn't seem like a tax victory to me. Let's bring it closer to home. I'm a Denverite. I grew up here, fourth generation. I'm very proud that DeVita headquartered in downtown Denver. Loved that new building. I'm at the government end of downtown. I used to be in Lodo in my law practice. I am worried about downtown Denver. What about you, KT? It's not quite the same with the racial unrest, the pandemic, so many people working from home. What is the future of downtown Denver? Well, I think despite the fact that all those things are going on, I, I believe the future of downtown Denver is is bright. Uh, there's always going to be a lot of people who want to work in the downtown area. We've, we need to make progress in having low-cost housing and access to services in that area. Uh, having a little less traffic coming in and out would not be all bad at all for people's quality of life. So I think it's a bright future. It's going to be different with less emphasis on everybody popping into those offices at those arbitrary hours five days a week. I actually think there's a lot positive in that because there's still going to be a lot of people and a lot of businesses who are going to want to spend a substantial amount of time downtown. Here's what I like about you, KT, and we're on a first name basis now, and I'm going to vote your way because I want that out of the Constitution. I don't like those sort of formulas. Let the legislature work on that. I believe in representative democracy. And beyond that, I noticed that it's predominantly favored by Dems as opposed to Republicans right now. And whatever Republicans are for, I'm generally against right now because they are the party of Trump. I don't know if you want to weigh in on Donald Trump or not, but he seems to be the top political issue going on right now. What are your feelings as a proud independent toward Donald Trump, or would you rather stay away? Well, well, first, I just want to say that we have 100% of all the Republican legislators in the Western Slopes and almost 100% of all the non-urban Republican legislators across the entire state in favor of our repeal, as well as mayors and county commissioners and the rest. And so even Republican leaders who have been exposed to the injustices and damage created by this, I have over the last five or six years dramatically changed their position and switched sides. So the Republican Party has been moving in the direction. All those who are actually there seeing what happens on the ground are moving in this direction and, and hopefully enough to carry the day. And as to, as to President Trump, I could not be more disappointed in many of his behaviors. I, I, I just don't think he pays the right kind of respect to all sorts of populations and issues. And I think that type of behavior is not good role modeling for our children. How long would that go on in Tabita? <laughs> that we would not tolerate some of that kind of word choice, the kind of criticisms, the kind of, the kind of disparagements, some of the untrue things that are said. We, we don't think that's compatible with being a healthy community and nobody's perfect. But I think he's stretched the limits of political expediency awfully far. Let's talk about COVID. I mean, it's affecting my life dramatically. I do go downtown to work, not as much as I used to. It's affected everybody's lives. My two kids, high school senior, a kid in college, they have a lot of online coursework. I expect it's affected your family as well. 
And I think Donald Trump has blown it in many respects, not being honest with us. He tells Bob Woodward the truth, but can't tell the American people. That's just fundamental disrespect that I cannot get past. But you're the healthcare professional and the business executive. What do you make of his leadership management abilities and specifically as regards the COVID crisis? Did it have to be this bad? Well, I also have been touched by COVID. My godmother, with whom I was very, very close, was a healthy, vibrant 79-year-old, and and we lost her to the virus in very rapid fashion. I never got to say goodbye. I never got to see her. She's the only human being other than my parents and siblings that I had been with every year of my life from the first week I was born. And so I have been touched by COVID. And and she was down in Florida. They, They live in Wisconsin, which is where I'm from, but they wintered in Florida, had a little condo down there, and they'd drive up and down, drive down in the fall, and drive back up in the spring to their cottage up in northern Wisconsin. And she, as soon as they, as soon as it became clear, when people started saying this is a serious virus, they packed up and left like the next day from Florida and, and drove straight up only one short stop and got to their little cottage in Wisconsin where they could really be totally away from everyone. Too late. Too late. Within a couple of days, she showed up with the symptoms. Clearly happened. Uh, clearly, she caught it when she was in Florida. And had there been more discussion sooner about the dangers and the contagiousness of this disease, she would have left Florida earlier, and she'd still be alive. And so, I feel I can talk about my disappointment that there wasn't more conversation more prudent warnings, uh, more highlighting of the risks sooner uh, because I lost a a woman I loved dearly because that all happened a little bit later than it should have. What was your godmother's name? Karn, Karn Bentley. May her memory be for a blessing. That's really a personal tragedy. And if she would have been spoken to the way Bob Woodward was, she'd be alive, right? Well, it certainly... That's certainly how we think about it, because they they literally packed up and left as soon as it was made public that this was a serious threat. I don't know how many of the Trump books you have read. I've read a lot of them. And I'm not a business tycoon like you, but neither is Donald Trump. What a house of cards. Just as the incredible CEO and businessman that you've proved to be, KT, what's your evaluation of his business situation and his current finances. Shouldn't America know who he owes so much money to? Yeah, I, I am a big believer in transparency and disclosure when it comes to anybody who wants to run for president of the United States. Uh, having, having said that, I, given I'm advocating for Amendment B, yes on Amendment B, given I'm chairing the Colorado Gap Fund where we're raising money for people of of all parties and all ages and urban and rural, given I'm also working on a a really innovative low-cost college that's focused on low-income kids to get a job competency-based college degree. I don't like getting too much further into some of the partisan stuff. What about your ally on B, Jared Polis? How do you think he's performing in this crisis? I think Jared has done a, a solid job in dealing with the COVID challenges. I agree with that. And it's a challenge. Wow. 
I mean, you run for governor, you thought about it, KT, and maybe you are still thinking about it. I imagine that it's got to be one of the toughest jobs in America to be governor of Colorado or any state in this crisis situation. No matter what you decide, you are going to piss people off. Correct. It's a, it's a very high degree of difficulty. You can't make everyone happy. And the, the governor is very bright, very data-driven, uh, very systematic, and I think has been as, as distinctively thoughtful and action-oriented. That, that isn't to say I've agreed with every single thing, but I understand and, and respect the judgment behind the decisions that have been made. Jared is way to the left of me as well. But I do think he's a capitalist, and I think he wants business in Colorado to return to normal. Don't you? I do. And how is Debita doing? I mean, that's an essential service. Your workers have to get there. If you're on dialysis, you cannot miss a treatment. Has the pandemic interrupted Debita's work, or do you guys go on no matter what? No, this is part of this. My answer will help show why I fell in love with the people of, of dialysis, the people that take care of the dialysis patients, because even in those early, most scary days with all the unknowns, and of course still scary now, uh, but our teammates showed up every day to take care of those patients because those patients need dialysis or they die. And so we had thousands, thousands of, of regular Americans in every state across the country uh, every, I mean, we're, since we take care of so many patients, virtually every city, every town, we had our people showing up to take care of patients when you couldn't be sure whether or not that patient had the virus or not. You, you couldn't take enough precautions back then to be sure that the testing wasn't available, as you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so DeVita is, is, is blessed with thousands of wonderful human beings who show up and take, took risks to take care of patients. And that's just no exaggeration. It happened every day and it's still happening every day. Well, that's good to know. Sounds like there's a work ethic there and a, a pride and realization that people's lives depend on it. Are you done with your, it seems to me you have an itch you haven't scratched. You're on these initiatives and referendums, but someday, KT, aren't you going to run for something in Colorado? And if so, do you need a political party? Because let me tell you, when I ran as an unaffiliated candidate for DA against Bill Ritter in 96, it was fun, but I didn't win. I don't know that an unaffiliated candidate can win any high office in Colorado. Do you think that's even possible? Oh, I think it's possible. Uh, it's unlikely that I will run for an office like that because I think my my highest and best use may very well be to do all the things I'm doing now where I can be an independent agent for change and not have to deal with any of that partisan complexity. I just get to work on stuff that a lot of people think is good. You know, I think it would be good if your native Wisconsin voted for Joe Biden this go round. Were you surprised when Wisconsin did not go for Hillary Clinton four years ago? Yeah, I, I was as surprised as everyone, I think, about how that election turned out. I, I think 99% of the pollsters were predicting a different outcome, and I was certainly no smarter than, than any of them. Well, Wisconsin's a mystery to me, but I know a lot more about you now, and I really appreciate you coming on. You won my vote, because I don't think these kind of restrictions should be in the Constitution. It was a mistake to put it there. 
I gather that's the essence of what your campaign is about. Yeah, it's 40 years old. It's antiquated. You know, the metaphor I use, Craig, is it's, it's like a home. If you still had the same plumbing that existed 40 years ago, in the meantime, your home is, is bigger. You've renovated. You've added some rooms. You've modernized. But the plumbing is still literally the same as it was 40 years ago. And that makes it a lousy house to live in. And that's what's happening with this. It's, it's out of date. Even our opponents agree about the damage it does. It's time to get it fixed, take that wonderful third lowest residential rate in the country and preserve it and protect it and be proud of it. But stop, stop throwing more burdens on small business and more burdens on the other half of Colorado. Beautiful closing argument. Kent Theory, can't thank you enough. Really a pleasure to get to know you through this interview. Well, thank you so much, Craig, for what you do and the openness you bring to these discussions. Thank you. See you, Kent. All right. Bye-bye. Follow The Craig Silverman Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. And subscribe to The Craig Silverman Show podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher. Don't quit on democracy. Be a part of this historic moment. Connect with us on social media at C. Silverman Show. In my practice of law, Michael Bailey, decisions are often left to a personal representative. God forbid a person gets killed. That's an important decision you can make ahead of time. Who is going to be your personal representative? What is your advice in that regard? So you want to pick somebody as a personal representative who has several qualities. Number one, you want them to kind of have a good sense of financial stuff and and matters like that so they can they can deal with that. You know, I have a friend who's really, really good and really, really smart and is scared to death to fill out a tax form because they don't quite, just the finances don't make sense to them. So you don't want to pick that type of person. You want to pick somebody who can understand finances. You want to pick somebody who's trustworthy, who will carry out your decisions. And if you can do it, you want to pick somebody who's not afraid of people not liking them or getting their feelings hurt. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hi, Doug Schoen. I've been following you through the years. I've read your book, The End of Democracy, Russia and China on the Rise, American Retreat. Mazel tov on your new book. Thank you so much. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. This is where prominent attorneys come to relax, tell war stories, kick around current events. I have interviewed your TV partners, John LeBoutlier, the late Pat Cadell, but I've never had the privilege sure. of meeting you, Doug. What an honor. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for your interest, and thank you for interviewing Pat and obviously John. And I've also interviewed numerous times Gordon Chang in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. He's one of your best sources in your book. Yes, he is. He's a colleague of mine. Sure. He's a great man. Tell us about that Fox News show that you had for so many years with Pat and John. We tried to do a no-spin talk show, not from the left, not from the right, but from the, I'd say, sensible, unideological center. And we 
were among the first to catch on that there was a real profound change going on in America. And with that profound change, we were able to identify and isolate the trends that made Donald Trump president. John LeBoutlier was a Republican congressman from New York at one point. Pat Cadell involved in some incredible Democratic victories. And you, you're no slouch with the Clintons, et cetera. But it seemed to me that all three of you were honest brokers and kind of stuck between parties. You were not extremely liberal or conservative. Do I have it pegged right? You have it pegged exactly right. We were loosely identified with political parties and closely tethered to the truth as we knew it. I ran my show, The Island of Independence. I was on for over five years on a conservative station, and then about 10 years before that with iHeart, which was Clear Channel. And it's sometimes tough as an independent to survive in the media world. Wouldn't you agree? I would totally agree. The, the one thing the two parties agree on is that the voices of independence and the voices of change should be tamped down. And there is no sympathy, backing, or support for those of us who go our own direction, as you found out and certainly I found out. I think it's more interesting because on any given issue, I want to know what Doug Schoen or John LeBoutlier thinks, and I can't predict it. I mean, with your average liberal or conservative, it's just baked in. You know what they're going to say. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, ideology has taken hold of politics now to the point where we don't have real dialogues and real debates anymore. It is all ideologically driven and to our, to our detriment. Absolutely, because we have real issues. That's why I loved your book, The End of Democracy, because Russia and China are licking their chops, looking at the United States weakened and divided this way. Isn't that the central thesis of your book? Hey, America, we got to get our act together. There are enemies out there. Well, that is absolutely the argument of the book, and uh, it is the argument and challenge of our times. The other point that I think I try to make, and certainly I suspect, Craig, something you'd agree with too, is we spend so much time trying to beat up on one another, engaged in ideological fighting and polarizations and arguments, that the net result is we spend more time fighting ourselves than fighting our enemies. I think that's right. You talk about Vlad Putin, Vladimir Putin. I'm on a first name basis with him, so I call him Vlad. He's a bad guy. He is a thug. He's a mobster. And as pointed out by Michael Cohen in his book that I've read alongside yours, Donald Trump respects him because he perceives Putin probably accurately as the richest guy on earth with the most power. What do you make of Vladimir Putin? What I make of him is he is single-mindedly and single-handedly pursuing an agenda that fundamentally and profoundly is antithetical and inimical to our interests. He has worked with the Chinese where appropriate to undermine us. And if you look at North Korea, Venezuela, Iran, the whole axis of evil, it is something that is facilitated by the Russians. And I must say the Chinese. Part of the premise of my show in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge is to show the various directions that people can go with a law degree. Look at you, Doug Schoen, a Harvard Law graduate. 
no doubt brilliant. But Vladimir Putin, he also got a law degree, I think, from Leningrad U. What motivates the man? Is he motivated by money, power, revenge? What is it with the guy? How about all three? I mean, I think he is motivated by all three of those goals. I think he is certainly financially interested. I think he is certainly interested in power. And I think that he is certainly interested in expanding his influence wherever it might be. Of course, Ukraine was part of that, a conflict that embroiled the president. You know more about it than most. You've represented Viktor Pinchuk. Tell us about Viktor Pinchuk and your knowledge, how it informs your opinion to write this book about the end of democracy, question mark. Well, I, I should say the book is separate and apart from anything to do with my work for Victor Pinchuk. But I observed through that work, and this is my opinion, not his opinion, that the Russians did not accept the existence of Ukraine as a separate and independent nation. And their actions in eastern Ukraine and with Crimea certainly support that proposition. I worry that unless we have a president who's willing to stand up to the Russians, we run the risk of permanent loss of sovereignty of parts of Ukraine, 5 to 10% of Ukraine, to the Russians based on their uh, incursions, and I think it was 2014. Does Putin want to dominate all of Europe? How far do his goals reach? You know, it's an interesting word, dominate. I'm not sure... He believes he can dominate it, but he would like to have significant and substantial interest in Europe, which I think he has been gaining as Donald Trump has been pursuing his America first policy. Nancy Pelosi says that all roads lead to Putin. Do you agree with that? I certainly do. Yes. How we deal with them and what we try to to do to handle it is something that is a central challenge in our foreign policy that I must confess, I don't think has gotten much, if any, attention in our ongoing presidential campaign. Right. But Pelosi says it in a way suggesting she just flat out asserts it that Putin has Trump compromised. She's not sure how. Do you agree with that premise that he's compromised to Putin? Well, let's put it this way. The way he has acted towards the Russians and, the, and Putin deeply, deeply disturbs me. That's what we call circumstantial evidence, right? We can reasonably that, infer. That's what I would say. Yeah, I don't have any smoking guns. It may be some of his loans. I don't know if you watched last night, I but did. he didn't outright deny that he has loans from foreign banks. And it may well be that he is. I don't know that as a fact, but it certainly is within the realm of reason. We are recording this on Friday. The podcast drops Saturday morning. Doug Schoen, what a thrill to talk to you. I did watch both those town halls. With DVRs, it's not a problem. And here in the Mountain Time Zone, they ran at different times anyway. But how did you oh, adjust your schedule on a Thursday night? I bet you watched them both. You know, I, I didn't. I, I know what Biden's going to say. And I was much more interested in focusing on Trump. And how do you think he did? Savannah Guthrie was pretty darn tough. And one thing, we will talk about COVID. You write about it. It came out of China. But 
Let me just get your assessment about Savannah Guthrie and that NBC town hall with Donald Trump. Well, I would say this. She sure didn't cut him any breaks. I saw that uh, there were a couple of reports that said, quote, Donald Trump didn't have a debate with Joe Biden. He had a debate with Savannah Guthrie. And I think there's a certain amount of truth to that. Did you know she's a lawyer, too? Yes, she is a lawyer. She went to Georgetown. Very smart. Harvard and Georgetown are almost as good as the University of Colorado at Boulder. I don't know if you've ever visited, but we don't take a backseat to anybody. I know that, and I am smart enough to know that that is certainly the case. Well, let's get back to Savannah Guthrie and Donald Trump. Tell my audience yeah. what you thought of that. You know, I, I thought she was particularly tough on Trump, but I thought she was right to ask him whether he'd taken a test the day of the debate. I thought that was a fair question, but I would say on balance, what troubled me is that there were very few questions about issues and much more of the questioning was about political topics. I guess that's of greater interest to people and I understand that, but I would have liked to have heard a little bit more issue-based discussion. Right, about Russia and China, I bet. When did you develop your interest I, in Russia and China? You've been writing about it for a long time. Where did that start? It started, frankly, just reading the papers, reading the news, and realizing that we had a problem that wasn't being dealt with, Craig. And, you know, I, I candidly, as you point out, been writing about the subject for years now. And I thought it made sense five or six years ago to do a book. And then I made a, a judgment that it made sense to reprise it. You are so darn smart on so many subjects. I was fascinated to see you not only have a law degree from Harvard, but you got a doctorate in philosophy. I do. Most lawyers drop out of those philosophy classes after a while, don't you think? It's, it's too esoteric. Well, I was in, I was in England. And I didn't really have much to focus on other than that degree. And I felt that it was a useful thing to do. And uh, so far, I have no regrets. Well, I studied Russia and detente was going on when we were in college, Russia-China relationships, Nixon breaking the wall. I've always been fascinated by the topic. And I, too, was a little frustrated that doesn't come up more. But You've gone on to work for numerous presidential campaigns. Tell my audience about your experience before I ask you, what is the number one issue in this campaign? I think the number one issue is, too, really the economy, as it always is. And uh, sadly, I say sadly, the coronavirus. Right. And Savannah Guthrie last night asked Donald Trump, I rewatched it. What about this herd immunity? Is that what you're going for? She didn't put it all together, but I have. And the news shows are starting to realize that he's got Dr. Scott Atlas shoving Tony Fauci to the side. And this guy, Atlas, who's not an expert, and other people around the president are pushing a herd immunity. And I wrote my column for the Colorado Sun this week. Does that mean because the emperor got sick, now we all have to get sick? So decrees the emperor. I'm not down with this herd immunity. And Savannah Guthrie asked him about it. And his response was, the cure can't be worse than the disease, which to me 
gave me the answer. I'm scared to death about that, Doug Schoen. What about you? Well, I am too. Look, we, you know, we were the infection rate. I, I think of the population is about ten percent, or perhaps slightly more. The idea that another fifty to sixty percent of us need to get coronavirus, and then another of that one and a half to two percent die before we get herd immunity—that's that's unacceptable. I think most people, most right-minded people, would agree. Hopefully, we'll have a vaccine. Hopefully, we'll have treatments. And while we don't know that the Regeneron treatment that uh, Trump had was helpful, hopefully that plus remdesivir and zinc and some other therapeutics are helpful and do prove to be helpful because we need to do much better job keeping people alive and healthy. And the mask issue came up extensively with Savannah Guthrie and the president Quoted some story that masks are harmful, this and that. Meanwhile, the government is saying, wear your mask. It's ridiculous that the president keeps contradicting smart guys like Fauci. And before you go off on masks, Fauci did make a mistake. Early on, he said, don't get masks. But he said that he had to tell the American people that because there was a shortage and he wanted health care workers to get it. So he told a little white lie, and now the president keeps twisting it off on him. And Fauci and everybody else says, wear a mask. And the guy who says don't is the president. And that influences half the country or a little less. And it's terrible. Craig, I couldn't say it better myself. I hope you, your listeners, and uh, anyone who is within earshot knows that wearing masks saves lives. And if we distance and we wear masks and we adhere to the CDC guidelines, we will do better individually and as a society than we would without it. And you can take it from Chris Christie. What a rebuke to the president. And isn't it circumstantial evidence that the spreader at the White House was the president, his acknowledgement that he wasn't regularly tested while everybody else was? He's the backdoor. And then He not only spreads it at the super spreader event, introducing Judge Amy Coney Barrett, the next day he goes to a closed quarters gold star families event, spreads it to them and the military leaders, and he wants to blame them. Can you believe it, Doug? All I can say is we need a president who is much more respectful of the science than our current president has been. And I'm for Biden, not so much because I love Joe Biden, but I really think we need, at this point, different leadership in the White House. You and me both. And we've been on similar journeys, and that's the trouble with being in the middle, independent, not lockstep with either party, although you've certainly been big in the Democrat Party before. I I just think that this election, Joe Biden is the clear choice, but in 2016, I did what you did. You wrote a famous column as a longtime Democrat that you could not support Hillary Clinton, and neither could I. Do you think that was a mistake on your part? And then I'll say whether it was a mistake on my part. What do you think, Doug? Well, I I think we would have had similar problems if Hillary had been president. So I'm not sitting here beating myself up. But I, if I had known what I know now, I probably would have cast a very reluctant vote for Hillary 
but who could have known that we would have something like a coronavirus? I endorsed your remarks and I second them. I made a mistake. And while we couldn't have predicted COVID and coronavirus, I wish I would have done a little more. You're a New York City guy. I didn't know that much about Roy Cohn, but you must have known something about him. And wasn't that a red flag that Donald Trump was mentored by Roy Cohn? Well, I will tell you this. The way Donald Trump has done business over the years and who his business associates have been gives pause. The way he's handled his finances gives pause. Put another way, I had hoped that Trump would rise to the occasion. He does not appear to have done that. And I was concerned that the Clinton Foundation was too much in bed with Putin and that Hillary was compromised by Russian leadership and the oligarchs. And I didn't know about Trump's many connections to Russia. And in my defense, I think a lot of this has come out since he was elected. I wish we would have known about it previously. I agree. And I wish we had that earlier. I, I can only say now I'm for Biden because I just think we need a change in the White House. Surely you've met Joe Biden. I wrote when I endorsed him before Super Tuesday that I don't think he's lost his fastball because he never had a fastball, but he could throw over the plate. He wasn't wild. Do I have him pegged right? Is he a wild man? I think you have him pegged right. I think he will do the, the right thing most of the time. I don't think he's going to be an inspired leader. And we may well uh, have greater reliance on the cabinet and senior officers, et cetera. I, I've been impressed by a lot of the former candidates, Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker, yep, Pete I Buttigieg. Agree. I mean, he's got a ready-made leadership team, doesn't he? That's, yes, he does. And I would prefer that team to Trump's team. Yeah, who's left on Trump's team? My God, the people who are falling off. Have you ever seen anything more frightening than Jim Mattis in the Atlantic first saying it was a Nazi tactic to divide and conquer, and then in the next paragraph talking about Donald Trump being deliberately divisive in that same manner? You know, I wish I could say that Mattis was exaggerating, but Trump has, you. I don't believe him to be a racist, but I believe he's used race and code words and dog whistles to polarize and divide. And that is very, very sad. Why do you say you don't think he's a racist? I read Mary Trump's book. She said that permeated the family. His old man maybe was part of the Klan. I think he, there was a culture of perhaps racial insensitivity, but I don't believe the man was and is a Southern style racist of the 50s, 60s, and the like. But look, I think what's most troubling is that he's used race to gain support and win votes. And that, to me, is troubling enough. Right. As Ben Sass was recorded saying, he's been flirting yep. with the white supremacists. I've said he plays footsie with them. I totally fell off the Trump train after Charlottesville. How did that affect you, Doug Sean, when you heard? Yeah, the same way. Those... I thought the, you know, Craig, I thought the whole line of saying uh, they're good people on both sides was terrible. I was also very upset last night. You asked about the town hall with how we handled the QAnon issue. 
Right. And I have special sensitivity to it as a Jewish person because I recognize that it's similar to the protocols of the elders of Zion. Here comes some powerful other people, elites, Jews, whatever. They want your children. They're going to do terrible things to your children. Only one guy can protect you. It's Donald Trump. I mean, my gosh, what a weird thing. And we have a congressional candidate here in Colorado who has semi-embraced QAnon. Have you ever seen anything like it, Doug Schoen? No, I haven't. I mean, QAnon is just an absurd and very dangerous philosophy. And the fact that this Marjorie Taylor Greene in North Carolina is going to be elected to Congress is uh, very, very upsetting. It is. And with the endorsement I'm sorry, of Georgia, the, not, Georgia, not, right. Georgia, not North Carolina. It, it is frightening. And what he told Savannah Guthrie is, well, they're against pedophilia. Are you kidding me? What a response. Your book comes out, Doug, in the midst of so many interesting books. I recommend your book, The End of Democracy, question mark to everybody. But what other books are you reading? Did you read the Mary Trump book about her uncle? I read the Mary Trump book. I read the Michael Cohn book. I read Michael Schmidt's book. I'm reading one now, which your li- listeners might enjoy, the new biography of John F. Kennedy that deals with his childhood and his period up to his election to the U.S. Senate. That would be fascinating. Did you read Andrea Bernstein's book about American oligarchs chronicling the Kushners and the Trumps and how they... I did not. Is that worth doing? Is that something you'd recommend? Oh, my goodness. Definitely. I've had a tough time getting her on the show, but I put that up there because the Kushners are more of a mystery to me. How about to you? I mean, you kind of ran in the same circles. And at one point, they were big Democrat donors. Do you know the Kushners at all? I I know Jared in passing. I don't know his brother or his father. Let's just say... Uh, Without getting into too much, they are a controversial family. Yes, they are. Here's the other book that I would recommend, and it's a Colorado author, Commander in Cheat by Rick Riley, the great Sports Illustrated columnist. Oh, about Trump's golf game. Yes. Have you read that? I don't know if you are a golfer, but even if you are not. I'm not a golfer, but would I enjoy it, do you think? Oh, yes, because it exposes Donald Trump and the way he values golf courses and then devalues them for one purpose or another. But his flagrant cheating in golf, which is a self-regulating sport, is really revealing. But as a lawyer, you might like Plaintiff in Chief by James Zirin, I think, is the author. That was that I've read. Yes. Wasn't that I I read that one? I mean, Yes. What a client. Have you worked as a lawyer, Doug? Do you keep your license active or tell us about your My license is active. I try not to work as a lawyer if I can. I do it occasionally, very occasionally. But let's just say I much prefer politics, writing books, working on campaigns. As a lawyer myself, reading that Michael Cohen book was really something. What did you think of that book? I learned a few things. I would just tell you that between the way Donald Trump operates and the way Michael Cohn operated, the two of them deserve each other. I know it. But Michael Cohen kind of comes to Trump's defense when it comes to Putin and says it's just uh, adulation on the part of Trump that he wants to be like Putin. 
and that it's more that than an organized collusion because he says nobody was that organized to get it done. But I'm not sure Michael Cohen knew everything that Donald Trump was doing. I don't think he knew, and I don't think he knows enough about Trump's finances to really understand. I agree with that. Here's a guy who's done research on something you do know. Brian Stelter was guest of mine, what was it, a week or two ago. Brian Stelter, host of Reliable Sources on CNN. He's written a book called Hoax about Fox News. Have you gotten that book? Have you read that, Doug? I read that one, too. Wow. And you were on the inside of Fox. By way of background, here in Colorado, I got called on a lot with Colorado controversies to be on Fox News with Bill O'Reilly and with Hannity and Combs back sure. in the day and covering the Jean Benet Ramsey case, Columbine, Kobe Bryant uh, rape charge here in Colorado. But you were on Fox all the time. Not only did you have your own weekend show, you were a paid consultant. What was your reaction to reading Brian Stelter's book, Hoax? Well, I, I, I guess my reaction was to say a lot of what he wrote were issues that I was aware of, that I had lived through. And it was a very, very good experience in my life being a contributor. And I enjoy going uh, going on. And I just hope that uh, there is more room for people, centrists and Democrats, on Fox News as we go forward. I look forward to watching you on Fox News. And I hope Fox News regains its way. Tom Friedman blames Fox News as one of the pillars holding up Donald Trump. But, you know, newspapers, media entities, they go through changes. And I think you're right to hope that Fox News may become a good place for Doug Schoen to be on all the time again. We love watching you. I loved your book. Thank you for so much time. Great. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it and hope to come back sometime soon. Okay, thanks, Doug. Thanks. Be well, Craig. You Bye-bye. too. This is the Craig Silverman Show, and I'm Craig. Our democracy is at stake. It's never been more important to let your voice be heard. Join the conversation and fight for our democracy. It is our duty and our constitutional right. Follow the Craig Silverman Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. Be a part of the change. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. (laughs) That giggling comes from our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Hi, Craig. We are in my studio. My dogs are present today. As you can hear, right on cue. Iko, Skyler, settle down. They are aware that this is a special animal edition of the troubadour Dave Gunders segment. And you know how it got inspired, Dave Gunders. I sent you an email about a world record, and I know you were impressed. I must have missed it. About the bird? Yes. Oh, well, you told me about this bird. No, that was, that's very impressive. 17,500 miles in one flight? 7,600 miles, oh, but you were close. Okay, so that's- How a, many days? That's like a, 11 days. That's like a third- that's like a third around the world at the equator. From Alaska to New Zealand. Do you remember the kind of bird? It was a, a it was a, a a god hawk. Godwit. G-O-D-W-I-T. And I always feel funny writing it out because I went to Hebrew school. 
probably like you, and it's spelled G-O-D. That's sacrilegious, correct? You're supposed to, right. You're not supposed to actually write out the full name God. It's so G-D. It's a, it, right. It comes from the Torah where you shouldn't take the 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 name of the Lord in vain, or actually maybe that that you shouldn't bear, have, have uh, idols. Anything that represents God should be abbreviated, not not in true form. I saw in a Jewish publication the other day the word Almighty with the capital A, but a dash instead of the I. Ooh, same idea. So God went. I had never heard of that bird before, but I was amazed. And you and I are regular walking partners during this pandemic. And a lot of it has revolved around birds. What are the bird highlights for you? Well, the owls at the beginning of the pandemic, I'll never forget. Back in late February, early March, when we were just hearing about this, we were watching, we were taking walks and watching these owls who had, that had just had their babies. Three beautiful owls. And they're around the neighborhood now. The nest is still there, but they are gone. That was amazing. But what other birds have we seen? Well, there's the water birds, the herons. There's the great blues and the yes. night herons that we the see. The hawks. And the hawks. But let's give some credit to the song that always gets the two of us singing. Even though I'm not a great singer, we do sing this together. Do you remember what that is? And Your Bird Can Sing by the Beatles? No. I'm talking about the red, red robin that goes bob, bob, bobbing along. Along. There'll be no more sobbing. When you're robbing. Now when she starts singing her old sweet song. Wake up. Wake up. You sleepyhead. Get up. Get up. You're Get out of bed. The sun is red. Cheer up. Cheer up. The sun is red. Live. Love. Laugh and be happy. There we go. I remember my mom singing that to me. That is a great memory. I know. And what did I do? I just sang. But you know what bird is taking over that has interesting dimensions? Magpies. Have you seen them all over lately? Yeah, bully birds. You don't like the magpie? Magpies are predatory of young nestlings, and I don't like them in large numbers. They have tended to, to take over areas. Do you know they are unique to the Western United States and don't really exist where you grew up on no, the East Coast? No, there's different kinds of magpies. These are actually the magpie is a beautiful bird. And do you know they are one of the smartest birds? They can recognize themselves in a mirror? Yeah, they don't, and they know I don't like them. I come walking by and they squawk at me. Well, you're talking trash on the air about them, but I asked you, Dave Gunders, do you have a bird song? And you gave me a beautiful ode called On and On Her Way. Tell us about the song we are about to hear. You know, I'm wondering if I should, because every, every song should really stand on its own. I, my, my dad, when he heard this song, had a whole different take on it. So I'm not sure that I should really present what the song was about from my standpoint. Well, that's interesting. I was a little confused, but I thought it was a perfect pandemic era song as well about time on my hands, moving too slow, ain't been myself this much I do know. And then you're like a bird fell from the sky. What an image that is. You know, that Godwin, I'd like to know more about that bird. Don't you think we should know the bird's name? It's gender. You mean, you mean uh, well, I think probably both genders. If one, if one did it of, of one gender, the others probably tagged along, don't you think? 
Well, they were tagged. I don't know the answers to these questions, but they flew for 11 days without water or food. Unbelievable. Now, my uh, my hypothesis that is that they do it in such at at a certain time and where they can rise high up into the Gulf Stream and take advantage of the of the air currents. They have to do that. Right. They're built like little bullets, like jet fighter planes. They are so efficient that God will. I might also interject that I know that hummingbirds will fly across the Gulf of Mexico. For years, scientists thought it was impossible, and then they finally did track them. That's probably a good 800 miles right there. And since we're going back a bit, birds are like dinosaurs. And so how do they know to get from Alaska to New Zealand? Apparently, they spot New Caledonia, and they make a little beer to the left. Yeah, they know it because they've been around for so many more millions of years than we have. Remarkable. Dave Gunder's song, On and On Her Way. Every part of me 
And so that's it. Another show. Thank you to my guests, Doug Schoen. An honor and a privilege to meet him. Amy Patton, a returning lawyer to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I think she's going to be a Repo County DA. And she's ready for it. Quite a job, public service, in this time of turmoil caused by Donald J. Trump. My feelings are clear. I'd love to persuade you or somebody you know because friends don't let friends vote for Donald Trump. I will see you next week on The Craig Silverman Show. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.